Well, page three gives you the outline. If you want to write in it, then on the screen, the basic outline should appear. Uh, as to the three points that we'll be doing in introduction, do not leave much space under introduction. And uh, don't leave much space under point three either as an outline uh, writer. Uh, most of the talk occurs under points one and two, Crete and the Cretans and the unfinished business. Most of it will be occurring there. More of it will come, the details, the sub-points will come as I speak. Uh, thank you for the invitation to, uh, uh, to be with you again and for the privilege of teaching you the Bible and in particular teaching you the Epistle of Titus. Uh, the two subheadings of the introduction are there for you, but you'll notice the first one is about teaching people the Bible. Because you'll notice I didn't say I'm teaching the Bible, but rather I'm teaching you the Bible. For teaching is never simply about content, but always about relationship. I don't teach the Bible, I teach people the Bible, or I teach the Bible to people. And as such, I have many things I would like to teach you but have decided not to as it would take too long and I was afraid that you tickies might be here. So as a preacher, I'm not covering everything. This is not an oral commentary. That's a great mistake for preachers today. But in this case, I'm addressing my friends and colleagues, some I do not know, brothers and sisters, but we're friends and colleagues and brothers and sisters in the task of leading the churches in the task of evangelising Australia. For example, there are some significant translation problems in our passage, not the least in the opening few verses of this passage. But while you're sufficiently well educated to understand the arguments I would use, and while you're sufficiently well grounded not to be rattled by the uncertainty of translation issues, I've decided not to go into the details with you because, well, you can work it out for yourselves from the books in your own study. Uh, it's not the essence of the teaching of Titus to unravel the Greek for you and show you how it functions. And we can spend so much time on the trees as to miss what the forest is about when we do that. And furthermore... Frankly, the chief reason is you've travelled a long way today and you're most likely all too tired to actually sit and have a Greek lesson. It's just not the time of day or night. And you see, I'm teaching people the Bible. And I reckon there'll most likely be tired people here tonight who've just had a big meal. And so rather than Titus, I'm going to talk about sex. No, no, I'm going to talk about Titus to keep you going as we go. But I'm not going to talk about Greek translation. However, there is a passage tonight where the translation issues affect the understanding of the book. And so I'll tell you the translation I'm working on and just leave you to work out the mechanics some other time. I'll just give you the answer. I won't give you the mechanics of how I've come to this conclusion. It's in verses 1 to 3 where different published translations do not know what to do with Catter and the accusative. So... I would use and follow J.N. Darby. Now, not everybody knows much about Darby. He was the founder of the, uh, of the Brethren uh, in the 19th century in uh, Ireland, Southern Ireland. Uh, he, he produced a very fine translation, uh, a very fine translation indeed, which is worth consulting like the King James Version is worth consulting. It's 19th century English, and so it's really of no use to us to use in church life today. But in your own studies you'll find a great ally in Derby who took the word of God very seriously 
even though some of the results I would disagree with. But translation-wise, I am astonished at how often I wind up agreeing with him. So to save spending too much time on translation issues, just let me give you Darby's first three verses. Uh, We have it up there. Paul, bondman of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to piety. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages of time, but has manifested in its own due season his word in the proclamation with which I have been entrusted according to the commandment of our Saviour God. Now, our beloved Apostle Paul did write long sentences, didn't he? So that's one of the problems we have. But when you break up the sentences, you lose the logic of it. Well, I've highlighted some points here in colours. I presume they're there, aren't they? Uh, Bondman is the word slave, which most of our translations, like the ESV, turn into servant, which is completely wrong. It's slave. I wish they wouldn't do that. Uh, I know why they're doing it, so as to avoid the negative connotations of the word slavery, but at the same stage, they're actually changing what the apostle wrote. He wasn't a servant of Jesus. Well, he was a servant of Jesus Christ. He calls himself that son, but he's more than that. He was a slave of Jesus Christ, and he gloried in that title, and we need to glory in it as well. However, bondman is a way of doing it uh, because that is much of what a slavery was meant. I've highlighted according to, according to, and according to, because that's catter and the accusative. That's where the translations, they, they don't know what to do with it, and they make up what they think it should be, which is a great help to the apostle. I'm sure he would have been uh, pleased to live in the 21st century where other people could tell him what he really meant to say. Um, you'll notice in this translation, certain bits occur in brackets. That's where he tells you where he's putting in words that aren't there in the Greek text to make the sentence smooth. And so I just highlighted the word the there. And the other problem is the word piety. We don't know what to do with this word, although it's all through the pastorals, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. That is, it's the word translated godliness. Uh, We don't know what to do with this word, really, um, because it is turned into a kind of spiritual morality word. But that's actually goodly, not godly. Godly is a God word. It's a religious word. In fact, some translations put it as religion, though that's a very 20th century concept religion. They didn't have that concept back in the first century, so that's not the word either. Uh, Piety, it's, it's, it's God. You've got to emphasize the God in godliness. It's relationship to God word that we're actually dealing with. It's not just being good. The extra O doesn't help us in understanding here. What is the opposite of godly what's the opposite of it ungodly no godless see ungodly and godly in modern english just sounds moral and immoral (laughs) religiously moral or immoral but actually it's godly and it's godless is the alternative to godly and saying it like that just helps you understand the importance of the god part of the word in the English. He tried to do it by saying piety and impiety, which was, it's it's a reasonable attempt, it's just no one knows what that word means either. So, in due course we'll look at this passage when we come to it, and tomorrow we're going to look at another passage in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which is a critical central passage of the whole book and is mistranslated. Um, But not in the King James Version, if you're an old-fashioned person. It's there in the King James, all right. And Darby, of course, gets it right. 
uh, as he usually does. Uh, but I thought it was just fair to warn you that that's the translation, and I'll stick it up when we come to it, or I won't stick it up, but you'll stick it up for me, when we come uh, later on to look at that content of that. But let's start now with the Bible. That would be a nice idea. Uh, and we start with the situation of Crete and the Cretans, which you see in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. This study works backwards. Well, last of the three paragraphs, we're starting with the third paragraph as the first one and we're heading back to the first opening paragraph at the end of the study if you're wondering how we're doing. But Paul makes a rude comment about the culture of the Cretans in verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He was alluding to, uh, to Epimenides, uh, the, the Cretan poet of the 6th century BC, but he was agreeing with this conclusion about them. You can make generalisations about people without turning a generalisation into a stereotype. A stereotype is when you assume that this particular individual fits and exemplifies the generalisation and so you then treat them not as they really are but as they fit or do not fit in accordance with the generalisation. But the generalisation can be true and can be made about people. An individual may or may not fit into the generalisation. For example, men are taller than women. That is true. But yet, one particular man may be shorter than one particular woman. To say, no, no, he must be taller because men are taller than women is stereotyping. But the generalisation is absolutely correct. Men are taller than women. In general, it's important, you see, because we are under threat today in our communication not to say anything about any group of people. Because as soon as you start saying any generalisation about any group of people, that's racism. Whether it's about race or not, it's racism, it's hatred. It's... But generalisations are true and are helpful. And generalisations can be made about cultures. Not all culture is good. And not all culture needs preservation. A culture that is always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons needs to be changed. I'm afraid the 19th century cultural relativists of anthropology, um, which was created by the deist uh, Tyler, uh, when he became uh, lecturing at Oxford, and the sociologists, which of course was made up by the atheist Augustus Comte, they've made culture sacred and the sacred secular. However, the point here is, in Titus, is that the culture was one of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and therefore it's not surprising in verse 10 that the people are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Nor should it surprise us that what needs to be done to them in verse 13 is to rebuke them sharply. For different cultures need different approach, and this one certainly needs sharp rebuke. For these Cretans were teaching what they should not be teaching, which is upsetting whole families. Let's spend a moment of understanding this teaching by looking at the character and the content and the error. The character was teaching. The character of the teachers is always important to see. For character and teaching always goes together, for good or for ill. 
Teaching is not simply conveying information. Teaching is leading people into the truth, or sadly into error. And teachers justify or deny their message to rationalise their behaviour and their own character. Great communicators with immoral character cause untold trouble to society and to the church. So here these teachers are part of the insubordinate deceivers of verse 10. They're part of those who teach, verse 11, for shameful gain. They profess to know God, verse 16, but they deny him. Notice how they deny him. They deny him by their works. What David said in introducing our whole conference together is so important. Character is critically important to the activity of teaching. What makes an able teacher able to teach? It's character and convictions and competencies. But if you remove character from it, then competencies and convictions are not enough. They are insufficient to be able to teach, to be an apt teacher. It's critical as in a whole range of issues, friends. For example, in the issue of whom church schools, Christian schools, should employ as teachers. If they're not Christians seeking with Christian convictions to live with a Christian character, then their capacity for teaching in a Christian school is seriously limited, if not impossible. How much more those who want to be the teachers of God's people? Their character the willingness to sit under the word of God and be changed by the word of God is of critical importance because teaching is not just conveying information. Teaching is relationship, building and leading. I'm not teaching you the Bible. Sorry, I'm not teaching the Bible. I'm teaching you the Bible. And as I teach you the Bible, you will get to know me just by me standing here and talking. I won't get to know you without a lot of extra work on my behalf in talking to you at morning tea, lunch and the rest of it. But you will get to know the teacher. Well, that is so in your church. You can't stand preaching in your church week by week without the church knowing you. And you as a character is so important. These people, their culture was reflected in their profession of knowing God which was really a denial by their works. Now, all this is pretty pointed, but politically incorrect, the way Paul is speaking too, isn't it? I'm sure that his Qantas sponsorship has been cancelled. But <laughs> what was the content of, this te- of his teaching? There's a Jewish element to it. Verse 10, the circumcision, uh, the word party, the word uh, uh, group in the NIV and the ESV, that's been added in. These were the circumcision. Uh, Verse 14, they're devoting themselves to Jewish myths. There's also a legalistic element to this Jewish view. They are devoting themselves to the commands of those who are turning away from the truth. Legalism has has this character of turning away from the gospel of grace, from the gospel of truth. 
and unforgiving, judgmental sinners, they find fault with everything. Find fault with food and clothing. See verse 15? Nothing is pure in their sight. It is the character of legalism. Legalism has this terrific hypocritical characteristic to it that it appears to be very moral, but in fact it finds degeneracy everywhere and is expressing degeneracy. You can think back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you just turn back a couple of pages, 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he speaks in verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving. See, even the food, even the marriage is seen to be impure is seen to be something to be abstained from, to be kept away from. The lawyers, the, the, the legalists, are always of this mindset. Uh, you, you see it in Roman Catholicism, where the average Roman Catholic thinks the priest, the nun, is particularly holy because they're celibate, as if therefore being married is in some way tarnishing your holiness. And, of course, it's really important that you fast from certain foods. All religions have fasts, except Christianity. They think that you're actually closer to God by not eating the pleasurable foods of this world. Nothing wrong with the pleasurable foods of this world, just provided you remember that it's just pre-sewerage material. But if you want to fast, by all means fast. Isaiah says fast of sin. That's what you should fast of, because... Fasting from food won't get you any closer to God unless you go for the one-month total fast. Then you've got a chance of meeting him. (laughs) There is an ineffectiveness of their teaching. Minds and consciences are defiled. Nothing is pure. It's like Colossians 2, if you remember Colossians 2, verse 23. These the abstinence of rules and regulations, the abstinence of things, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. (laughs) So they profess to know God and they've got all the rules and regulations for the absolute pure life, but in fact what their actual life will be like is anything but pure. And the Royal Commission has brought this out so severely, hasn't it, that these wonderful, holy, celibate people have been anything but celibate or holy. We cannot know the details of the Cretan era, but it's similar to both 1 Timothy and Colossians. Jewish myths and legalism that promise much but deliver nothing. Promise to deal with sin but they are no cure for the defiled. We want to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. We want to be transformed in character. Jewish myths and law and rules and regulations are not going to do it for us. That's not the route. Addressing the lazy, gluttonous beasts of Crete with a morality based in myths which delivers no true knowledge of God and no true freedom from sin, the sins of the flesh. Some years ago, a Muslim student from New College came and spoke to me 
about the superiority of Islam over Christianity. He'd come to Australia to what he viewed was a Christian nation and he said it just demonstrated how pathetically weak Christianity was. The total inadequacy of the morality of Christianity. The women were immodest whores and the men were lazy, drunkard, vulgar creatures. And I couldn't disagree with him. It's into this situation like that that Titus was left behind in Crete to sort out the unfinished business. The unfinished business of the Apostles' mission. Well, we'll leave that outline up for a while as we work our way through these points. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, he has to do these two things, set things right and appoint elders. Set things right is where the ESV has it, quite accurately, put remained into order. For quite clearly from verses 10 to 16, there's work for Titus to do. These false teachers had to be silenced. For not only were they wrong, but they were teaching for shameful gain. And they were also upsetting whole families. They were, they were not sound in the faith. They were turning away from the truth and they were confusing purity with impurity. They had to be silenced. But how? How does Titus go and silence people? He doesn't call upon the, call the government to censor them or anything like that. Paul doesn't say to do anything other than chapter 2 verse 1, which we'll look at, teach what is in accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 1 verse 13, rebuke them sharply. And chapter 1 verses 9, appoint elders who can give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That, I presume, is how he is to silence them, by the the teaching of the truth and by sharing that teaching of the truth with others and teaching the truth by rebuking error at the same time. For a key part of teaching is to rebuke. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Timothy was told, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You can't preach without teaching. You can't preach and teach without rebuking. Brothers, we can't preach the word of God without teaching. Teaching, as in that passage, with urgent patience. I'm a child of a generation that wants instant success. I want success and I want instant. I want it actually yesterday if I could organise it. That is my kind of emotional makeup. But under the word of God, I've been encouraged to understand patience. I prayed for patience and other silly ideas is a book that I once saw. I bought the book because of the title. I didn't read it. I've downsized my library so many times it's long gone. You might have it as a second-hand book with my name written in it. If so, I hope you enjoy it slowly. (laughs) Teaching with urgent, in-season, out-of-season, patience. 
It's a funny combination, isn't it? We must keep doing it all the time, but be patient in the doing of it. We can't preach and teach the word without, though, reproving, rebuking and exhorting. For without the negative, the positive is pale and unrecognisable. We don't teach the Bible, we teach people the Bible. But we don't teach information, but God's sovereign word which created the universe, which brings new life, which challenges sinful hearts, which calls upon all people to repent. You're going the wrong way. Stop. Turn around. Go another way. How can you preach that without preaching the negative? I'm sorry, you won't be able to. You must be able to teach and rebuke if you're going to convey God's word to people. Or you can preach faithfully the truth. But if you're preaching faithfully the truth without helping people to see the error that they're in, they won't actually understand the truth that you've explained to them. It doesn't actually connect. You need to speak negatively as well as positively. So as Titus teaches the truth, he must rebuke the false teachers. He must rebuke the Cretans. He must rebuke the liars, the evil beasts of the lazy cuttons. He must rebuke in order that they may be sound in faith. Notice the goal of rebuking. It's not to lord it over people. It's not to find fault in people. It's not to reinforce church membership rules, please. But it's to bring people to sound, healthy faith. It's for their sake that we do it. And therefore, we need to do it with prayer and with kindness and gentleness. We need to do it sometimes with tears. In general, I think Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 to 5 is the pattern for this kind of rebuking ministry. When you see your brother fall into sin, then those who are spiritual amongst you should go to him in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. See, the rebuker does not sit high over those who are being rebuked, but understands there but for the grace of God go I. I do not take my standing on his falling. I actually bear his burdens with him by coming in a spirit of gentleness. It's a wonderful little passage, Galatians 6, 1 to 5, in terms of the personal worker in the gospel of Jesus and in the work of pastorally caring for people. It's like also remembering the words of Jesus, that you must first remove the log from your own eye before you see the speck in your brother's eye. We need to rebuke, but we need to rebuke so that the other person may be sound in faith. I'm afraid that so often in our ministries of rebuking and negativity, we are self-justifying as we put the other person down and establish how much superior we are. I would never have done that, but seeing he has, let me help him out. These Cretans were teaching what they should not and therefore were upsetting whole families. But now 
Now, we must seek to be helping by teaching the truth and by rebuking. It's into that situation like that that Titus, you see, is left to do this work. But the Cretans weren't the general people in in need of rebuke. They were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and the teachers were insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. So the rebuke had to be sharp, severe, rigorous. Brothers, to do this work requires a strength of convictions, a strength of character, a confidence in God's word, a willingness to stand up for the truth, a willingness to risk relationships with other people, a willingness to be rejected. Those of us who wish to be popular, who wish to be friends with everybody, have a serious weakness. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so they spoke to the false prophets of old. Blessed are you when people hate you and revile you for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for you are with the prophets of old. It requires a strength of conviction to speak the truth against your society, against the practices of people, the people you love. And all this lay behind Titus' other task then of appointing elders in every town. Several in each town, not singular and not in each church, but in each town, plural in each town. These are the older men who by virtue of the way the world was created are to be the patriarchs of society. For the elder will rule the younger, except in most extraordinary situations like Jacob and Esau or John the Baptist and Jesus. The children are to honour their parents just as having children ruling in government would be a terrible sign of the judgment of God in Isaiah chapter 3. We glory and glamorise that which is young. The Bible is more realistic in speaking of the aged. It's the elder. Titus is not to appoint people to be elders. They are already elders. That's who they are. They're the older men. That's who they are. I always have, I think it's naughty, uh, enjoyment uh, in talking to Mormons. Uh, you know, Elder Jones comes and says to me, have you considered the Bible? And I say, you're Elder Jones. They say, yes. You look very young. <laughs> Are you my elder? And they say, yes. I say, well, you must tell me where you go to your beauty treatments because I look a lot older than you. <laughs> and you're my elder, are you? They do not understand this generally, being of the American persuasion and not given to any subtlety or satire. And so we, I continue on with this for some length of time, to my enjoyment, their confusion, and to save other Sydney-siders from having to hear their message. It's a nonsense to have an 18-year-old elder. What, what, who are they older than? All the 17-year-olds, Yes. Titus is to appoint elders, older men, to be overseers. Elder is what you are, 
Overseer is what you do. It's long been observed that the words elder and overseer, presbyteros in verse 5, episkopos in verse 7, are being used synonymously. But one is an adjective, the other is a noun. The noun is descriptive of the verb of what they do, that is, that they are to oversee. The older men are the ones who are to be appointed as overseers, for that is the task to which they're being appointed. They are the guardians who watch over things, taking responsibility. The very character of Christian leadership is to take responsibility. To do the task, they must be above reproach in two ways. One, in the family, and two, personally. Firstly, they must be above reproach in family life. It's 1 Timothy 3 that links the overseer's responsibility to the household of God. If you can't look after your own household, how can you look after the household of God? Here in Titus, we're not quite told that the re- that reason, that linkage is not necessarily made, but simply as God's steward, he must be above reproach. And the word steward is the household word oikonomos, that is household manager, family manager. But it's this task as steward of the household which is the reason why he is to be above reproach in his own family. So in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, children of believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, some of these are difficult today. With widespread divorce and remarriage, it's more important than ever that we uphold monogamous standards. With amoral, child-centred upbringing, it's more important than ever we demonstrate a Christian home and household. The children are believers, is the one that we find most challenging, I suggest. It's a challenging verse for many, as if the heartbreak of seeing your children walk away from the Lord is not already painful enough to have this verse telling you that you're not suitable for ministry We question whether we should remain as overseers in the gospel work when our children have renounced the faith and left us to go and live a life in opposition to the gospel we trained them in. Some solve this difficulty by emphasising that it's children, not adults nor teenagers, it's children. Others solve the difficulty by claiming that the word is not believing, the word is trustworthy, if your children are not trustworthy. But both or either resolution is technically possible, grammatically, linguistically possible, but why do we seek to resolve our difficulty by changing the meaning of the text? That's not how you live under the word of God. Rather, look to how the text spells out the meaning itself not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If you can't oversee your own children, how can you have the respect of the town to oversee God's household? Surely this sets us a goal for us to aspire to. As soon as we start asking questions about how old is the children, are they teenagers, we've moved into Phariseeism. We're asking the detailed rules, laws, legislation in order to avoid the implications of the text. 
The text is saying if you are going to take leadership in the society, then your leadership in the home should be expected to be seen. If it can't be seen in your own home, then why would anybody in society be willing to listen to anything you've got to say? You've got to be above reproach. Your household needs to be in order. They're very frustrating, I know, for some of you at this point. Why didn't he tell me the exact detail? Because the passage doesn't. It just challenges us, doesn't it? I may say that seeing children wandering away from the faith in their adult life is indeed a great agony and sorrow for which we need to encourage and help each other. I understand that is a deep sorrow. I just don't think the passage is talking about it. But the second way that the overseer is to be above reproach is personal. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now there's a character list to work on. There's several of them, aren't there? The kinds of things to get your mother-in-law to do a a cross-stitch of, or or something, or to hang on your on 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 your your walls of your study, or to get to pop up on your computer screen every day to have as your your screensaver. It goes with Galatians 5:22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It goes with Philippians 4:8, whatever is pure, whatever is honourable, whatever is. These are things to aspire to. This is an important list. This is what we must be like. We must not do these but we must do these. Which of these things on the list doesn't make us squirm a little bit as we recall the times when we failed or repeatedly have failed on some abiding weakness that this list reminds us of, our inhospitability, our our lack of self-control, our lack of discipline, our, our violence, our quick-tempered our arrogance the parallel lists in 1 Timothy 3 1 to 7 and then 8 to 13 have in common three things they keep popping up sex alcohol and money in each ministry list they occur and sadly they are still the chief reason for ministry failures today Nothing new under the sun, my brothers and sisters. The terrible stories of which Dave introduced our evening this evening, those terrible stories, sex, alcohol, money, will lie behind most of them. You may think alcohol doesn't. More fool you. One of the characteristics of alcoholics is the denial that they're alcoholics. The first thing that you need to learn in AA is to admit that you have a problem. As long as you don't admit you've got a problem, you've got no solution. So as long as you think alcohol's not a problem, you are the problem. It's a massive problem in Australia. It's a huge problem in Australia. The generation which I grew up in knew that and spoke and preached against it and didn't drink alcohol. 
I still don't. I'm still a teetotaler. The generation you many have grown up in, alcohol has been freely accepted within Christian communities and changes have happened in that regard. My generation, nobody left the ministry because of alcohol. In your generation, I know five men who have left the ministry because of their alcoholic addiction. It's a, it's a big problem. Money, that's a problem. The way in which we approach our finances as family is a big problem, a growing difficulty for us. And indeed, sexual immorality keeps on seeing men leaving Christian ministry and women sometimes leaving Christian ministry as well. They're the three Titus and Timothy were told about. The words are all fairly straightforward in the list. I'll just give a few comments about them. In the negative list of verse 7, the word arrogant means overbearing. I think the NIV's got it well. It's, it's self-willed, stubbornness that happens. Little difficulty in these ones. Violence is always spoken against in the uh, scriptures. To be a man of violence is, a, is to be not God's man. We, we are never to love violence. We must uh, spurn violence. Uh, uh, the BDAG uh, tells us that it means pugnacious or bully, but I am very wary of this word bully. Uh, to define bully is almost impossible, and to accuse people of being a bully is very simple, especially if they're strong leaders. It, it's much more pugnacious violence that we're talking about rather than this very rubbery term uh, which people are using today on bullying. Uh, greedy for gain is, is shamelessness uh, is involved, the shameless greedy for gain. In the positive lift of verse 8, the word hospitable comes from loving the stranger. Uh, xenophobia is the opposite of it, uh, loving the person who's different, but it's a welcoming them in. That's where it comes from, but it means hospitable. Self-controlled is a very important word. We'll keep on coming up with that tomorrow and Wednesday. Um, it means living under wisdom. Uh, being prudent, being thoughtful, making the decisions not on the passions or the quickness of the moment or the pressure from other people, but having wisdom govern your decisions in life. It occurs 16 times in the New Testament, 10 of them in 1, 2 Timothy Titus in the pastorals. It's a, it's a theme that is running through this part of the New Testament, an important part for Titus is. Uh, disciplined means by what what we mean by self-controlled it's disciplined in Galatians 5.23 it's the last element of the fruit of the spirit uh, is disciplined again notice the prominence of character over competencies that the list is not about what you can do the list is about who you are as a person Character is so important in Christian ministry of any kind and in Christian life. It's character in ourselves. It's character in Christian leadership. And my brothers and sisters, it's character in selecting leaders as well. When you're looking for a youth pastor, when you're looking for a Sunday school teacher, for a home group leaders, for, for board members or council members, for, for MTS apprentices or for the missionaries you're going to send or the people that you're going to put into more college in full-time pastoring or whatever college that you're going to put them in, sorry, um, whatever college, the uh, more college, whatever college, <laughs> um, 
What do you look for in a Sunday school teacher? What do you look for in a youth pastor? Character is the first and fundamental thing. It comes with convictions. But their competencies, and they need to be competent, there's no point of appointing someone who can't do a job, their competencies need to be cradled in character and convictions. And you see the list, where you've got to appoint people, Timothy, in every town. You've got to appoint overseers in every town. What am I looking for in an overseer? A long list of what they are not to be like, a long list of what they are to be like in terms of their relationships with their family, in terms of their relationships with themselves. Character, 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 character is all that he is looking for, it would seem. And that's what we must look for as we appoint people. The troubles you'll find down the track are massive if you appoint people of poor character, a little Christian conviction. That You pick up the pieces forever afterwards. It's a real mess. Better to leave the job vacant than to have someone of the wrong character in it. Because the mess they make is so great. But it's not only character, it's also convictions. Because look at verse 9 and the challenge of holding firm. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He has to have a strong commitment. He has to cling to, hold fast to, be devoted to. Notice why he has to hold so firmly. It's so that he can both affirm the truth and deny the error. Got to do both, you see. That's why he has to hold so firmly. It's so that he can both affirm and deny, that is, give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. You won't do these, especially the second one, unless you hold your convictions firmly, unless you're fully convinced. Brothers, it's so hard to stand up against the false teaching of our day. It's being overwhelmingly taught by the progressives, the elites, the, the, the first of our the inner city tribe, hipsters. That 1.3 million control the mindset of Australia. I don't care whether you voted Liberal or voted Labor at the last elections. It was just so lovely to see the 1.3 wrong in their expectations of what was going to happen. Because they are the pundits. They know everything. I rejoice they were wrong. They control education. They control media. They control publishing. They control politicians. They control the agenda of today's society. And it's so hard to just stand against them day after day, year after year. It's just easier to go quietly, to adapt to our culture, to accommodate the prevailing winds of thought, Not, of course, denying the truth, but simply not emphasising those bits which are uncomfortable, not emphasising it in opposition to others. We we rationalise that by by being all things to all people. We contextualise in the message, aren't we? We're expressing the truth in their language. When in fact what we're doing is muting the gospel so that only those who already understand it could possibly understand what we're talking about. Visit churches from time to time and you will see that if you're a Christian you can understand the message but if you're not a Christian you wouldn't have the faintest clue what's being spoken about because it's never that clear because it's always muted into the terms of the non-Christian culture that it's seeking 
to evangelise. It's a nonsense, friends. The task of Christian oversight requires and demands both affirming the truth and denying the error. How else will people repent if they do not know their error? This is especially true in the face of the culture of this day. For notice the connection in verse 10 with verse 9. For, or better translated, because, uh, gar in the Greek. It's because the Cretan culture is so anti-Christian that overseers must speak up clearly, rebuking, rebuking sharply those who would teach error. I think that's true of Australia. But what is it that the overseers are to hold firmly to? Here's our last heading. For what we must hold firmly to is the trustworthy word as taught. For the word of God is faithful. Five times in the pastorals you get that little phrase. Faithful are the sayings. But the whole message of the gospel is trustworthy and faithful. But what is that message? It's the message as taught. The message as taught by Paul. The apostle, the missionary, the evangelist. And so we go back to the introduction of Paul's slave and apostleship in verses 1 to 3. And I remind you of the translation that I'm adopting. That is back to Mr. Darby. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages of time, but has manifested in its own due season in his word, in the proclamation with which I have been entrusted, according to the commandment of our Saviour God. We return to verses 1 to 3 now, because the overseers must hold to the trustworthy word as taught, that is, as taught by the Apostle Paul the God's apostolic word of verses 2 and 3 of the hope of eternal life that has been entrusted by the command of God to Paul. The God who spoke and cannot lie, he has promised eternal life before the ages of time. He has manifested his et- this eternal life in due season. How? In Paul's proclamation of the gospel. So back to Paul. He describes himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. More on the subject of slavery tomorrow. But the slavery is the word that Paul uses. He was not free to do as he pleased. He was only free to do as his master required. He was a slave and apostle according to two things. Faith and knowledge. Faith of God's elect, which I take it is Israel. It's important as the deceivers are the circumcision. It's important because the error is the Jewish myths. But the message that Paul preached was in accordance with, in agreement with the faith of Israel. And it was in accordance with a knowledge of truth, the gospel, which is in accordance with godliness. Over and over again you see this word godliness occurs in the pastorals. Godliness, not goodliness. It's the opposite of, the, of, of godless. The secret of godliness is spelled out for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just turn back there, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You want to know what godliness is? It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, which I take it is the resurrection of Jesus in the flesh. 
vindicated by the Spirit, which I take it is the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, seen by angels in the tomb with the first one that saw the resurrection was the angels, proclaimed among the nations, which is why the apostles believed on in the world even by the Gentiles and take it up in glory where he reigns judge of the living and the dead. See, godliness is not our climbing to God. Godliness is God coming down to us. Our relationship with God is always based upon God's initiative and grace, not upon our efforts and and endeavours. So in the situation of Crete, with such opposition to the gospel, Titus is to act by silencing and rebuking opponents and by appointing suitable elders to be the overseers who would also teach and rebuke the opponents who will by character and conviction teach the truth just as the apostle proclaimed it and rebuke those who oppose it. Truth consistent with the faith of Israel, truth of the godliness of the gospel, the promise of eternal life that is now appearing in the apostolic teaching. That is what their task is. That is what our elders whom we're appointing as overseers need to do. And if they need to do it, you need to do it. And if you need to do it, you've got to hold firmly to the convictions of the truth as taught and expose the character of life of that truth as taught which is why chapter 2, verse 1, commences for us, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, which, God willing, I will do for you tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that he brought into effect by his death and resurrection and the pouring out of your spirit, And we thank you, Father, that this has now been made known to us by the preaching of the gospel, by the apostles, as they went to the nations, and especially by our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, your slave, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he taught as was consistent, as accorded with the Old Testament, the truths of the gospel. And we thank you, Father, for those who have labored over us, teaching us these truths and rebuking and correcting us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us such firm conviction of the truth of the gospel, such holding firm to that truth, that we may not only proclaim it with our words, but that our deeds would reflect it and exhibit it, that people may see that we do profess knowing you in truth and in fact. And we do pray, Father, that you would equip us and enable us then to be your teachers, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.